Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Oge Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in the field of public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in our field and outside of it. Oge, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the novel coronavirus that has been in the news. You've heard about it, and you've probably seen stories about how serious it is, or maybe you've seen reports that it isn't serious at all. Maybe you've seen how some people are accusing others for covering up information about the outbreak. Today, we're going to start talking about the coronavirus outbreak, coronaviruses in general, and how information spreads. Yeah, so I know I got a lot of requests to make this episode over the last few weeks. Uh, Oge actually pushed really hard to get this episode made. Uh, So thank you to her and thank you to all of you who reached out. In order to help us understand this outbreak and the information around it, we decided to get an expert on the phone. So we got Dr. Tara C. Smith. Dr. Smith is from Kent State University College of Public Health. Um, But before that, she was in our Department of Epidemiology here at the University of Iowa, where she directed the college's, college's Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases. She completed a postdoctoral training in molecular epidemiology at the University of Michigan and obtained her PhD from the University of Toledo and her BS from in biology from Yale University. She researches zoonotic infections, which are infections that are transferred between animals and humans, and was the first to identify livestock-associated strains of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, in the United States. She has published over 80 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters. She also writes about infectious diseases for several national sites, as well as maintains a scientific blog and has been very active on social media to help spread correct scientific information. Because of that, we figure that she would be the perfect guest to help us both understand the infectious disease side of of this outbreak, as well as the outbreak of false information and fake news that both around this and just in general. Emma Mather and Ian sat down with Dr. Smith and first they talked about her research. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you say your name and what you do at Kent State? Sure, I'm Tara Smith and I'm a professor of epidemiology at the Kent State University College of Public Health. And can you talk briefly about your work as an epidemiologist? Yeah, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, and my work has focused on the epidemiology and evolution of Staphylococcus aureus. So we have focused on Staph aureus in the community, especially looking at transmission between people and animals um, in Iowa, largely pigs. Uh, We've also done work looking at Staph aureus in the environment, including in buildings and in gyms, and have also looked at wildlife carrying Staph aureus to look at the diversity of of the organism in those species. Have you found the diversity of like Staph aureus like has corresponded between wildlife and humans and why is that important? Yeah, so we're trying to figure out really how this cycles outside of just human populations. So when I started at Iowa, there had been some recent papers from Europe looking at at pig Staph aureus, um, which we thought was a perfect place to investigate that, right? Um, So in, in pigs, they have kind of unique strains of Staph aureus that are not commonly found in, in humans, but they can transmit to people just fine. We, we found them in lots of farmers and lots of pigs. 
So that was something that was kind of being missed in a lot of human clinical investigations, because usually you don't do a lot of typing unless you're at an academic medical center. So probably farmers were getting infected with these strains but didn't realize it. Um, so we wanted to understand kind of how those cycle between, in that case, livestock and, and humans, but also how wildlife could serve as reservoirs for these new, new types of Staph aureus, and also how they can carry resistance genes and transmit them into the environment. Um, for example, we did some studies looking at, at goose feces, because <laughs> um, obviously they, they are big, you know, big birds, they they poop a lot, that, that species can get into the environment, get into creeks, get into water, transmit that to humans, and we can pick up those, those strains or those resistance genes. So that's what we're trying to figure out with all of those. So it's nothing new for a disease to jump from an animal, or for a pathogen to jump from an animal and then end up in a human population. Right, right. It's probably happening much more than we realize. We just miss a lot of them. That's pretty scary. <laughs> so, um, on to the coronavirus. What is a coronavirus and what is different about this one? Right, so it's an RNA virus and we've known about human coronaviruses for a long time, but th the ones we knew about like in the 60s were mild, they caused colds. Uh, then in 2002 through 2003, we had the big SARS outbreak. So a, a severe human coronavirus, of course, that transmitted to lots of people, caused somewhere around 8,000 infections and roughly 800 deaths. So that was the first really serious human coronavirus that we saw. And since then, we've seen, um, we've, we've documented other mild human coronaviruses, kind of the cold type ones. Um, but also another serious coronavirus in humans, MERS. Um, that also has a pretty high fatality rate, but that's not very transmissible person to person. Um, so then we have this new coronavirus that has emerged in, in Wuhan, China, and seems to be kind of in between those two, we think. It seems to be more transmissible than either of them, causing, again, about 30,000 cases so far um, as of... February 6th <laughs> will be much higher um, when this airs. Um, and we're, we're still trying to figure out the, the fatality rate for this, which is complicated at the beginning of an epidemic, but it looks to be maybe around 2 to 3%. So a lot of cases, not a whole lot of deaths so far, but still about, I think, 560 or so was the last number that I saw in just about a, a month's time. So pretty serious and obviously something that everyone globally is is looking at now yeah and you know we're, we're being I feel like we're being a little bit brave in in recording this almost a week ahead <laughs> right to allow for our edit cycle but yeah as you mentioned the, the numbers are going to change a little bit between absolutely or we don't really know what's going to happen between now and so. so you mentioned that it's mostly been in China especially in Wuhan where else is this and how is this outbreak kind of spreading Right, so we have had cases in the United States. Uh, we have uh, 11 that I've seen so far. Again, and I've been on, on other calls this morning, so there may be more. And um, two of those have been cases of human-to-human -human transmission, but both of them in spousal pairs, so people that have really close contact. That's one of the things we're trying to figure out is how easily this spreads to people who don't have that close contact. If you're just, you know, passing each other on a subway or, or something like that, can you spread this easily? We don't know that yet. 
Um, other countries have also had a number of cases. Um, Germany has had multiple ones. We're seeing them in, in Hong Kong, and we've seen them in Vietnam, Thailand. Um, about 25 countries or so around the globe have seen at least one case. But so far, the bulk of those have all been related to travel to, to Wuhan or, or other closely related areas there. Um, so we're not seeing a whole lot of, of human, human, you know, large extended generations of transmission outside of China yet. But that's definitely one of the key things that we're looking for are those extended chains of transmission in other countries. Is there any other like interesting facts, like things about coronavirus that you think the audience should know? Oh, good question. So one of the things that is kind of an academic question at this point, but got a lot of, of press in the previous weeks is, is where this came from, right? We mentioned zoonotic diseases, which are the ones that come from animals. And so with all of the coronaviruses that we know of, they all seem to originate in other animals, most probably bats. So SARS, we think it was kind of a double jump from a bat to probably a civet cat, it was kind of like a weaselly animal, to humans. From mer or for MERS, it was probably from a bat to camels to humans. And we still see with MERS ongoing camel to human transmission. That's a big risk factor for developing the, um, the infection. So with this coronavirus, the Chinese have done amazing work on this. They had sequences available of this in, in just a few weeks' time after they first recognized it. And looking at the sequence of the virus, it does also seem to be most closely related to those from bats. So right now it's human-to-human -human transmission. So the origin isn't quite as important for this current outbreak. The potential origin of this, the species where it came from is not so important for this particular outbreak. But to prevent any future spillovers, we want to know where that came from. So that's why some early focus was on the wet market there in Wuhan. And maybe that's where this originated, maybe not. There seemed to be cases that appeared before people started getting sick in the wet market. So that's something that's, that, again, is people are looking at, people are trying to understand. But for now, since it's spreading person to person, you know, seemingly relatively easily, where this came from is not the huge question people are researching right now. Great. Well, thank you for answering that. Um, mm -hmm. And we're going to kind of change directions just a little bit. So we know viruses don't happen in a vacuum. What's the prevailing public health response that, you know, that China has been taking as well as other countries? And is it warranted? Right. So obviously China has something like 50 million people quarantined to try to stop spread of this virus, which is the biggest quarantine that has ever happened in human history, essentially. So whether this is warranted is difficult to answer. So we don't know how effective it will be. It seems there is definitely a, still a lot of transmission going on within those cities. And when you have population numbers like that, if, if you're going to wait until this dies down, that could be who knows how long, months, you know, maybe longer. Um, so it's not really clear what, under what circumstances China will lift the quarantine for those cities. Um, what's going to happen to those people? We already know that there has been at least one death of um, a young man who was disabled. His father was infected. He his father was quarantined and no one was taking care of this young man who, who passed away. I'm sure there are probably other cases like that that have not come to media attention. So, 
we know this is, you know, hurting people in that area. Um, and so again, it's kind of undetermined how long that will go on and what will happen there. There's also been calls to, you know, basically shut down all transportation in and out of China. That's one of the things that the WHO, they, when they declared a public health emergency of international concern, which they did maybe last week or so for this virus, uh, that's one of the things that they tried to prevent is, you know, the complete disruption of travel and trade because of this epidemic. And we're already seeing some of that. I mean, lots of, of U.S. Uh, airline companies have canceled flights to China and things like that. So I think those things are understandable from kind of a psychological response. You know, if they, if they have it in one place, just cut everything off, right? But we don't have any really good evidence that those types of, at least the, the travel bans, that they work because people can be in the incubation period, hop on a plane and be someplace else and then get sick, you know, come down with the illness when they land. Um, so those don't seem to help. With the quarantine, we just don't have any great data on something that massive and what's that, what that's going to do. And I think you're going to see a lot of not only public health people, but also, you know, people that work in human rights and, and law looking at this quarantine and, and writing a lot of ink on that over the next few weeks. So one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that we don't just send our send people on flights. Uh, a lot of trade that happens between you know the United States and China is coming aboard planes. So if you shut down all of those planes and you you know if you sell flowers that are shipped across the Pacific via plane, suddenly your business is looking you know a lot more a lot more fraught and a lot harder to to complete. And so that's something that I think a lot of Americans aren't thinking about um and i think a lot of people in general just don't understand exactly how much airlines contribute to package delivery absolutely and even things like having an adequate supply of masks for healthcare workers in the united states the bulk of our um, n95 masks that could be used by healthcare workers to help protect themselves against this virus are manufactured in china and so, you know, it's not only can we get things here, but also, you know, other supply chain issues. Are they going to use all of them for themselves? Are they going to send any to us? I mean, there's just so many things that this has the potential to interrupt in so many different areas. So as you heard on the during the interview, we interviewed Dr. Smith about a week in advance. So we wanted to give you the current statistics of the outbreak. As of Wednesday, the 12th of February, there were just over 45,000 recorded cases of the novel coronavirus, primarily located in China. There have uh, been 13 cases in the United States at this point with zero deaths, and all no people known to have the virus have since been quarantined. The outbreak throughout the world has killed a to total of just over 1,100 people. So, okay, what do you think about the interview? Um, I thought the interview was really really informative because in epi or in epidemiology so we have these seminars and this week we also just talked about coronavirus and the discussion came more of the biological aspect of the virus and we also spoke about the whole SARS outbreak and how they kind of differ, differ or how they are the same so right now my own biggest fear with coronavirus really is the spread. And I know she spoke about how 
China has quarantined over like 50 million people, mm-hmm. which I thought was really bizarre. And I'm actually kind of scared about that because then you have people trying to escape using probably like illegal methods or like, you know, and then increasing the spread. And then most of this time, especially if the spread goes to like developing countries, which might have unaccounted cases as, since um, the symptoms of coronavirus kind of look like symptoms were like flu and cold. Yeah, I thought that this was interesting for a couple reasons. The definitely it, you know, one of the reasons why we want to make this is I think a lot of people are concerned about coronavirus. And I think that Dr. Smith provides a lot of really interesting context and important context about about fe- uh, fear, but also like, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into fear in our, in our information section. But I thought it was interesting to hear her background on it and also just how to think about it and how how to you know keep it in context and especially here in the United States, how not to panic about it. Because as she's noted, as we've noted, there are very few cases in the United States and we, and we do have them under quarantine. However, I thought her, her the fact that 56 million people are under quarantine, as she noted, that a lot of ink will be written about this. I do think that for years we will be talking about this as a case study in public health of government power and people's ability to move versus people's need to be safe. All right, now on to disinformation and misinformation in public health. We see so much fake science and fake news, and we wanted to know what an expert thought about the two in the context of this new outbreak. And there's been a lot of talk about the coronavirus through social media and the news, and how are people trying to make us scared about this new outbreak through disinformation? Yeah, so... Um, if I can, I'd like to kind of separate two different aspects. So there is misinformation, which is just kind of the sharing of information that is wrong, but not necessarily purposely so. And I've seen some of that too, uh, by even, you know, well-meaning folks, but those that don't have any kind of background or expertise, maybe in infectious disease. Um, so they're sharing things that are wrong (laughs) or, you know, not quite right and scaring people. And we've already had, there was a whole article that The Atlantic um, did on a scientist at an Ivy League university who I will not name, but um, he really, he put out a, a Twitter thread that went viral and scared a lot of people because he just didn't understand what he was talking about. So I think there's that, there's, there's that misinformation that also can get spread really quickly. And then there's active disinformation, which is purposely spreading false information. And that can be for a variety of reasons. So, I mean, some people profit from it. There is a guy named Mike Adams. He also calls himself the health ranger. He's had a long time site called naturalnews.com where he, he sells vitamins, he sells supplements, um, he sold during the West African Ebola outbreak, he sold an Ebola protection kit, which was basically, you know, kind of gloves and stuff you could get from Lowe's for about 20 bucks, he sold it for 200 on his site. So he's teaming up with Alex Jones, the oh. kind of, yeah, conspiracy theorist. <laughs> he's been on his show, I, I think once already, and I think he's supposed to go on it again, maybe today or tomorrow. And of course, they're just, you know, 
basically working with each other to spread this fear. So they both get more followers and they both sell more things. Um, so there's the profit aspect of it from, from people who, who benefit from that monetarily. There's also the, the issue of, again, kind of Russian interference with everything. And some of that we, some of that is rumor, some of that we don't know. But there was a kind of a, a, a picture that went around yesterday from, that was supposed to be of China's official counting site for this epidemic, right? That's, that shows how many you know, cases there have been, how many deaths, how many people recovered. And so there was an article that went around that, oops, they really released the real figures, which were, you know, 10 times as high for all of those for like a second before it got corrected, you know, which, which scared people, right? <laughs> this idea that, that China is, is underplaying this epidemic by, you know, a thousand percent or something. And that seemingly may have come from kind of a Russian disinformation campaign, but it got, you know, spread around even by some health journalists and things like that. So, and, and that's just, of course, to just kind of disrupt everything, right? Um, so there are, there are different players and they have different goals in trying to sow that type of misinformation and, and disinformation out there on the internet. Yeah, so there's both people who mean to spread it, or who mean to spread it through, you know, either for disruption purposes or so that they, you know, can can sell certain products, but also the well-meaning people as well who just mm -hmm. are just, yeah, sharing what they come along, what comes along. Exactly. Who's most at risk for receiving fake science and fake news, and what can they do about it? I mean, I, I, I think we have to realize that we all are. Um, that we all have these biases and, you know, we, we, we trust people that we, you know, we follow on social media or our friends or things like that. And we don't always question when they, you know, put out an article or something like that. And we share it because we trust them. But they might not have the information, right? Did they check their sources? Did they double check things? Do they know who's, who's sharing this and why do they trust them? So I think we have to be skeptical about everything and, and not assume it's just one group or another that is susceptible to fake news or one political party or another or anything like that. I think we all have to really, you know, take a second before we share something on social media or spread it to our family or friends and think, you know, check if it's accurate and just get in the habit of doing that because there is so much bad information out there. And again, even if it's not necessarily purposeful, you could still be spreading something that is that is wrong and that could could drive fear. Definitely. And with this wrong and fake science, what do you think makes it so attractive to people on the internet, especially during these outbreaks? Well, I think everyone wants to be thought of as, you know, kind of kind of an expert and someone that other people can trust for this type of thing. And for some of those groups, especially those that are maybe very distrustful of the mainstream media or something like that, when, when you feel like you have an in-group that all share the same views, but they're different than those of scientists or the media or something, it makes you kind of feel special, right? So that's kind of like those books that, um, I forget the author, but you know, the cures that they don't want you to know, right? Yeah. That, that they are hiding something from you and you are wiser to be skeptical of that. But then those other people are really just lying to you too. <laughs> so 
so I, I think there's, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm sure there are great psychological articles on this that I have not read. But, um, but you know, there's that kind of in-group mentality and that idea that you know more than other people um, that I think makes it attractive to, to some individuals. So I'm going to kind of, you know, step back and say, you know, there's so much disinformation there out there. We're already all sharing it. Why is it so important that we fight it? You know, it's just out there anyway. Can't we just let people who believe in fake science just kind of, you know, be and the truth will eventually come out? Yeah. <laughs> and there are people who definitely believe that. I am not one of them. So I follow a lot of anti-vaccine groups on Facebook and, and Twitter and things just to keep up with some of the, the latest rumors and, and claims that they're making. And just yesterday, there, there was a mom who had been on one of those. Her children were diagnosed with flu. The doctor suggested she give them, you know, Tamiflu. So instead of giving that, she went to her Facebook groups to ask for advice. And they told her to, you know, use elderberry syrup and mega doses of vitamin C and, and those types of things. And her four-year-old son ended up dying. Oh. Yeah, he was, this was in Colorado, um, again, just like yesterday. So, um, so that type of misinformation and, and bad health advice that percolates through social media can have really serious effects. It's not just, you know, like, oh, if people want to, yeah, I don't know, you know, use crystals and, you know, in addition to other normal health advice, other, you know, evidence-based medicine, that's fine. That's not something I'm, I care about. But when people eschew evidence-based medicine, it can have really bad outcomes sometimes. So that's why I don't think it's something we can just kind of live and let live, because in this case, it took the life of a four-year-old child, and he had no choice in the matter. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great explanation of that. I should note to the audience that that was a question uh, Definitely a devil's advocate question. <laughs> I think hopefully if they've been joining with us, they know we're all about public information here, especially, you know, in Iowa where, you know, we're still working on improving our vaccine mandates and we're still working mm -hmm. on, you know, people will often bring up issues like fluoride in water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, helping fight disinformation is going to help not just in, in the infectious world, which is where we're looking now, but in all aspects of public health. Oh, definitely. It runs the spectrum everywhere. So what is one thing that you thought you knew, but later realized that you were wrong about? Yeah, so when I started talking to people about science and doing this type of outreach, uh, it was in, in the late 90s, and one of the things that was happening was that our state legislature in Ohio was trying to bring creationism um, so teaching, you know, that God created the world and evolution is wrong um, into the curriculum under the guise of something called intelligent design. So basically the idea that everything is too complicated, it had to be designed. And so as a young and naive PhD student, I thought, you know, oh, if you can just explain the science to people, they will totally accept it and realize how ridiculous this is. And having done this now for, you know, 20 years or so, I have learned, sadly, that that is not the only way that people will change their minds. I mean, some people are genuinely looking for information. Some people will have their mind changed by getting good information, but oftentimes I've, I've learned that that alone is not enough. 
So that's one thing that unfortunately I've, I've learned in this journey is, is that, that just getting people accurate information is not really enough to combat some of this misinformation and, and disinformation that's out there. It's also about having the same worldviews and trusting the same people and being in the same social circles and other things like that that really drive what people believe even more than just, you know, just the facts. Yeah, well, as a child who grew up in Ohio in the 90s and early 2000s, thank you, one, for <laughs> fighting those battles. Uh, but two, yeah, I think it's a great point that you bring up that, like, people listen with both their head and heart. Mm -hmm. There's a, uh, a great book called The Righteous Mind by, uh, I think, Jonathan Haidt. Um, and it, it talks about the conscious and unconscious mind as an elephant and its rider. So that, you know, your conscious mind is, is a rider who's controlling the elephant of your unconscious mind. And so your unconscious biases and all your preconceptions, if they decide to just run off, I mean, you're trying to control an elephant and you probably can't. Yeah, absolutely. What do you, one, one uh, thing that I didn't have on the sheet, but what's, what should we be doing? You know, you started to hit on this in your question or in your, in your answer to the last question, but what should we be doing as public health educators to, to really reach people? Yeah, great question. And unfortunately, what I've found is that a lot of it is, you know, one, putting yourself out there, but two, it's not something that we can do just through, you know, websites and, and podcasts and things like that. It's, it's really a lot of that building trust over time which often, you know, involves a lot of personal interaction, person to person, um, and just really being known in the community as individuals or institutions that can be trusted and that really do have the best interests of the public at heart. Um, and I think as a college, I mean, I think, I think the College of Public Health has done that really well, interacting with a lot of different groups and stakeholders throughout the state. But I think you just still have some people that's, are just going to be inherently untrusting of an institution like that. And you still might need to do some, you know, again, some of that just person to person type of community outreach. And that's hard and that's time consuming and it's a lot of labor. And I'm on, you know, again, some of these vaccine groups and social media talking to scared parents, you know, almost every day um, about vaccines and, and infectious disease and things like that. And I think that does change minds of people who are hesitant in some of these areas. Again, some of those who are looking for good information but just don't know who to trust. But that's not something that is easily scaled up. So, so I think having some of that trust built up in communities over time is the best thing that we can, we can work to do. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's something they touch on in a lot of my undergraduate classes right now is it's not just science and educating people you really have to go out in the community and show them like hands-on and build that trust to have these health implications better in the community and to get good health results absolutely yeah i think when you build that trust that that relationship you're also giving yourself a platform to equip people and often people won't listen to you the public health person but they might listen to their friend who did listen to you. So I think that's yeah. another. Absolutely. Yeah, trusted individuals, and not only friends, but pastors or other community leaders, things like that, who, who um, have uh, 
interact with a lot of people in the community and, and have a lot of that um, kind of capacity to help change minds. Is there anything else? Is there anything else you want to talk about in the world of communication, coronavirus? Before we transition to our last question, I don't think so. I think you guys have covered quite a bit. <laughs> so our last question is: What is one thing outside of the world of public health that has interested you recently? Yeah. So, as a high school student, I used to love Greek mythology. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I haven't really done much with that lately, but there's been a couple of books that I got for Christmas that I've been reading um, on, on Circe and um, Achilles, and they're both by the same author, Madeline Miller. So I'm kind of starting to dig back into some of that now as, as an escape from, from all the other stuff that's going on. I think Circe is a good way to, uh, <laughs> to uh, you know, kind of dovetail this podcast. You know, we started with pigs, and it sounds like a Pigs. Absolutely fantastic. Good job. <laughs> well, Tara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank right. you. So I thought this was one of the most interesting parts of our conversation with the different incentives that people have for sharing, you know, to be part of that in-group that knows a little bit more than everyone else is, is really interesting. I never thought about that. Okay, what do you get out of this that you hadn't thought about before? Um, so talking about the in-group, I've definitely been in such a situation. It's not something... I was consciously aware of that I'm trying to do an in versus out or me versus them. But it's definitely something I think that comes up when we're talking about like implicit bias and unconsciously how we think or how we act. And also since the coronavirus really is this huge emergent situation, I can see how everyone wants to be like updated and current. But then that need to know what's going on exactly at this point, especially with infectious diseases, leads to a lot of misinformation. And it's, I was hosting one discussion section and almost everyone in my discussion section had something to say about coronavirus. But they came from, they used like different articles, different sources, saying different things, using different perspectives. And then the next thing was, how do we know if these sources are actually accurate or not? And then that's another huge, uh, deeper issue because depending on when you talked about trust. So I could trust this source, but how do I really trust that this source actually has the information? And also, like, there's a difference between, okay, you can fear for something like, okay, I'm afraid of this whole coronavirus situation, but I'm also not going to panic. I just have that, oh, I should be conscious and like, you know, I should really do the same things I used to do and just kind of be wary of my environment and stuff. But I'm not going around like in mass hysteria. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pull out just a little piece of that, the idea of trusted sources. I thought the fact that everyone was susceptible to fake news was such a good point. I find myself on the internet from time to time and I, you know, I'll share an article within minutes of its publication only to find out a couple hours later that they had to issue a retraction. So now I've been trying to uh, take information and, just, and wait to share it for a couple hours to see if there's maybe a track retraction or something else just, just in case. Um, but that way, 
you know, as someone who is, I consider myself quite well, well versed scientifically, and yet it's easy for me to share fake news because all the information during an outbreak can come so fast and people may report things that aren't fu uh, fully vetted and, and it leads to retraction. So I thought that that's really interesting that, you know, even sources that we might trust, you know, your, your trusted news sources might get it wrong because they report on a thing immediately. But then after a couple hours, the dust settles, retractions are made. Um, so definitely just making sure that you realize to double check things a day or two after just to make sure that there hasn't been any any changes um, um, to our understanding. Also because science is changing all the time. Um, so I think that's another important thing. I think um, with like coronavirus and how you said science is always changing, especially since is this emergent disease. So as honestly, every second, I think the news is going to change. But I think the best option I would have said is oh, wait a certain amount of time to just see the change and see the degree. But then it's also hard to wait because everyone wants to know right now if they should pack up and leave or something. But yeah, patience, I guess. Yeah, I'm definitely in the camp of wanting to know every second. I've probably I've probably looked up coronavirus news about 6,000 times in the last week. <laughs> but uh, But yes, I think... What we're going to try to do on this podcast each week during um, during the next couple weeks of the series is kind of synthesize the news that we've seen and and put it into broader context, not not just oh this is the new highlight or you know a cruise ship hasn't been able to dock that sort of thing. Um, we want to really synthesize broader trends around coronavirus and misinformation in science and disinformation in science. So we have more coronavirus news coming up for you next week. Uh, we're going to be talking with an industrial hygienist about what types of protections are appropriate for what kind of settings. So if you don't know what an industrial hygienist is, you'll have to tune in next week if you want to know more about whether masks are good, if you've seen the CDC thing uh, and WHO and maybe masks aren't always good, well, we'll have a little bit more information for you next week. You can let us know what you thought about this episode by reaching out to us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu, cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. That's it for this week. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Olga Chibol, Emma Mether, and Ian Bukta. This episode was produced by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Tara C. Smith. You can find her on Facebook as Dr. Tara C. Smith and on Twitter handle at a-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y You can also check out her website at TaraCSmith.com T-A-R-A-C-S-M-I-T-H dot C-O-M This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week!